Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So I am hoping that everyone had a chance to buy this incredible memoir outside. Uh, I guarantee that after this interview, if you haven't bought it yet, you're probably going to want to. Uh, and the book really covers your, your early life, some of your experiences in college and law school at Yale, uh, where you graduated in 1971, um, then takes the reader through your 24 years of law practice, and then the process of being nominated and, and confirmed to the bench. So we have 90 minutes, and my goal is to go through all of that. Spend all no. Spend the the first half talking about the book, and the second half about your uh, time on the bench. So I'm completely. Although abandoning, that's volume two. Yes, I'm a, exactly, which I hope you do right. Yeah. Uh, but I'm abandoning any pretense of you know Terry Gross' calm voice, and we're just going to blitz <laughs> through this because none of you are going to be tested on this, so you don't have to take notes. You can just sit back um, and enjoy it. So um, I, I want to start with the preface of the book, uh, which completely grabbed me. Uh, but it, it starts with this story about a panel that you did for young women at Yale Law School uh, with now, in the, I guess, late 90s or early late 90s? 90s? Late 90s. With now Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. So I wanted to ask you if you would share that story. The story is sort of the trajectory of the book. Um, uh, it was, so there's a panel at Yale Law School. It's moderated by Kate Stith, who was a professor at Yale, and it's Sonia Sotomayor, who was then was on the Second Circuit, and me, a lowly district court judge. And the women at Yale Law School wanted to know, how does one become a judge? What courses should they take? What jobs should they pursue? Sonia went first and goes, she has a very calm and deep voice, and goes, well, first you graduate this institution. You do well. You then clerk for a judge. You then work for the government. Then you work in a large firm. You have opinions that you care about, but you're cautious about reflecting them outwardly. And you become a judge. Then it was my turn. And as I describe in the book, Ever the Trial Lawyer, I go, how do you become a judge? And I pause. Well. You represent the first lesbian feminist radical revolutionary accused of killing a police officer for the anti-war effort you can find. <laughs> that would be your first case. You then do every abortion case in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You speak on hot-button issues on Boston Common. You represent high-profile individuals. And for the final coup de grace, you marry the legal director of the ACLU. <laughs> and you become a judge. And so the story begins with the Sachs trial, which was the anti-war activist trial, and ends with being sworn in as a judge and follows sort of unusual twists and turns. Yes, I, I think I like that story because it really captures both the essence of your practice, but I think also you as a person and, and your sense of humor. Um, but I, I really do want to set the stage by talking a little bit about your family uh, and your those formative 18 or so years. You were born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan right. and then moved to Flushing, Queens, right, right. when you were around seven. Um, but some of the really most memorable parts of the book for me were um, the parts where you talk about uh, your parents in particular. So I wonder if you'd just share a little bit of, of your background with us and tell us about your very memorable parents. Well, you know, the, the, 
one of the things, one of the reasons why I wanted to tell this book is that it was important to tell a story of someone who didn't, was not born with a silver spoon. I was born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. My father, um, uh, we like to kid around and call it the Gartner floor-covering fortune. It was, as we said in New York, the toil practice. He had a toil business. Tile, for anyone who needs a translation. <laughs> Tile, not toil. And um, he was very conservative. He, my mother didn't work. He wouldn't let her work. He wouldn't permit her to work. He didn't let her drive. And then he winds up with two daughters, and he doesn't have a clue what to do with them. So for my sister, he would tell my sister that she uh, should take the commercial course in high school because he didn't want to waste an academic course on a girl. And she went to Barnard. He was prepared to pay for Barnard because he figured she'd flunk out immediately. So I was the second, and she had paved the way. But the things that were said, we were, we were constantly dealing with what the world was presenting to us and this very traditional background. But one of the things that, that I actually I'm, I'm comforted when people who have read the book have told me about is that how much I love them and how much, how important they were, came out in my life. So it was learning how to love and disagree, how to uh, respect and, you know, and disagree with someone, which I think really enabled me to negotiate through a life. In fact, I described stories about, as a trial lawyer, when my father was alive, I'd run by my various arguments to him, and I figured if I could persuade him, then I could persuade a jury. But there are wonderful stories in the book. You know, the first time I marched against the war, I, you know, I, I went home after we marched down Fifth Avenue. I was so full of myself. I was flying high. And I went home to my father and mother, and I told my father what I had done, and he was appalled. He was absolutely appalled. And we argued until 2 in the morning. And then finally, in a ringing voice, he said to me, Nance, he said, it's one thing to believe in something. It's quite another thing to do something about it. <laughs> and of course, I, 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 I understood that. He was... Uh, you know, just born, he was born in this country, but his parents were not. And there was a feeling that if you lifted your head up and people knew your name, bad things would happen. So I knew what he was talking about. Uh, for my mother, the comp she didn't know what I was doing. I didn't marry till I was 39. And she literally, Barnard she could deal with was in New York, although my parents told me my father wouldn't let me go to school out of town because the only reason to go out of town is to sleep with men. Uh, I didn't think Radcliffe was well worth that price, but that's what, what he told me. So I went to Barnard, and then when I got into Yale Law School, my mother sat me down and said, you know, you've priced yourself out of the male market now. <laughs> so the world was changing very rapidly on the one hand, and I was dealing with these two people whom I desperately loved uh, on the other. And I wonder sometimes if negotiating those has really helped one enormously in one's life. I used to tell the story about uh, the 11th Hour News. Uh, there was a program in New York City called the 11th Hour News with John Cameron Swayze, who spoke like he had lockjaw. And my father and I would watch it, and then we would argue about whatever was going on the news. So we argued about, I remember, Red China's admission to the UN, and we argued about feminism. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but what that, those arguments did is communicate to me not what he said, but what he implied, which is 
my opinions mattered. He had to engage with me. And that was what pursued, what pushed me forward. It's not that I had a father who was saying, you know, go be a judge. I had a father who was saying the opposite, but in terms of what he communicated, it was a very different issue. And in fact, when he died, when we were cleaning out the apartment by the bedstand, was every article that had ever mentioned my name that he had by the bedstand. And um, I write in the book also about when I'm waiting to, become, to be confirmed, uh, he comes to my office. My, I was in a private law firm. And he kept on saying to me, you're going to be confirmed by the state Senate, right? No, 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 Dad. This is, this is the U.S. Senate. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the state, right? No, 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 Dad. The U.S. Senate. He says, the Anita Hill Senate? <laughs> said, just so, Dad. And he finally got it. And then he looked up tears in his eyes when he was going through the letters about my nomination and said, you know, I'm, I'm proud of you. Um, so I, I, it's, um, it's a story of, you know, sort of struggles at all levels because this was not the, you know, the typical middle-class Jewish family that, pers- that pushed women to, to work and pushed them to college. It was the, there was a theme and a subtext, and the, the text was one way and the subtext was quite another. So, well, and you obviously paid more attention to the latter. Yes. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, t- tell us a little bit uh, about Yale Law School itself in the late 60s. And one of the things that I've, I've actually mentioned to a few of my students is that you apparently could take Spanish for credit in right. law school then. Uh, right. And, and you really were enjoying the atmosphere. You were right in the middle of this, you know, this feminist movement that was sort of in its infancy. So tell us a little bit about being in, in Yale Law School in what, 1960? 1968 through 71. Right. I was supposed to be in the class of 67 when there were only eight women in uh, the law school out of 160. And uh, then I went to graduate school for a year rather than to go to law school. And by the time I went to law school, there were you know walloping 20 women. And the reason it had gone up to 20 was because they couldn't fill their class because of the Vietnam War. So suddenly they had to allow women in. And, you know, when people talk about numbers, numbers really matter. Going from 8 to 20 mattered. We were complete pains in the butt. We organized about everything. Uh, It was, uh, I don't think I had ever been as engaged in life and politics as I was there. The first day I was at Yale, it was a march somewhere. I didn't know what it was about, but I marched. You know, it was, uh, it was very exciting. But Yale, um, uh, Yale was more Yale even then than it is now, um, meaning it's very laissez-faire. So in fact, the Spanish for law school credit, California fits into this. I persuaded the dean that I was going to work for California Rural Legal Assistance and that I needed to learn Spanish for that. So I took a Spanish course for law school credit. And um, in, this is 1970, and the law school went on strike because of the Kent State shootings, uh, because of the bombing of Cambodia in 1970. So all the law schools, all the schools across the country, or many of them rather, ended the term early. So I never finished my Spanish for law school credit. So to this day, I only know how to say, the police attacked the students. <laughs> I couldn't tell you where the bathroom is in Spanish if my life depended on it. it and, you know, and in addition, I tell the story, which is completely true, um, that when I graduated Yale uh, and took the bar exam, 
I thought dying intestate was a disease. <laughs> Sound like, you know, does it, intestate, prostate, something nasty, you know? Uh, so it, it tells you how far you can go having a sociology of law background. Um, but I, I loved it. We had the first women in the law course. Uh, we had, there were no women on the, one woman on the Yale Law School faculty, so we enlisted Barbara Babcock, who uh, is, is here now, and um, uh, together we put together a woman in the law course. And there was something, um, uh, Gloria Steinem talked about this in an interview she gave, there was something euphoric about the times in a way. You were constantly discovering new things. It was, oh my God, that's wrong. Oh my God, that's wrong. Oh my God. And there was something wonderful about the clarity of your, your the seeming clarity of your vision um, and something about suddenly sharing that with other, other women. So it was, uh, it was a very heady time. And I, in one sense, it made the next few years all the more difficult because I was at this place that was struggling with equality for women, struggling with racial equality, and then went into a world, the criminal defense bar world, which was struggling with neither. And that was a shock to me. But um, I loved law school. And I, and I graduated law school fully intending to go back and be a law professor. And, uh, you know, and that was that. I was going to be in the library. Right. But first, you went and clerked for yes. a year. So yes. you clerked for a year and apparently managed to pass the bar in, in spite yes. of the fact you did not know what intestine Bulk was. transfers. I won't yeah. tell you what I thought they were. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the bar graders, they're just skimming, right. really. Right. Um, so <laughs> my husband, by the way, tells a story about the uniform gift to minor statute. And he wrote an essay about, he thought he's an ACLU lawyer. He wrote an essay about how he thought it was terrible that you asked minors to wear uniforms. So... <laughs> That we became lawyers and judges is really shows you how far you can go yes. in this country, right? <laughs> but so you you leave your clerkship, and now you know it's it's not just really a fork in the road. There's there's lots of options open to you. So so talk about some of what those options were, and then what you chose, and and why if you if you're sort of sure why you you chose. Um, well, for, first the, the the clerkship was not an easy. Uh, road. It, it, the, there's a. Uh, I love to tell the story that the judge that I clerked for is Judge Luther Swigert, Seventh Circuit. He was really terrific. Um, but when I sat down to interview with him, he said to me, "Well, he said, uh, are you going to have marry and have children? Because I don't want to waste a clerkship on someone who's just going to marry and have children. So you should tell me, are you going to marry and have children? So coming out of Yale Law School, I didn't know what to do with this comment." I know what I thought of, but I couldn't say that to him. I know what I wanted to do, but I couldn't do that to him. So I said, well, just so I good, of course, I will never marry and have children. It was sort of true, because at that moment, I had no such plans. And really, um, something I say to young women, I actually could not envision a relationship with a man who would support the kind of career that I wanted to have. So it wasn't far from the truth to say to him, no, I was never going to marry and have children. Then I had a clerkship year that was wonderful. And many years later, when he was celebrating his 80th birthday, he asked me to speak on behalf of all the clerks. I was at that point living with my now husband. And so I got in front of all the clerks and people from his past. And I told the story about how I promised Judge Swigert that I would never marry and have children. 
And then I turned to him and got on my knees and I said, Judge Swigert, I'm 39, Baron, release me from the pledge. <laughs> uh, and he did. <laughs> Three children, a dog, a cat, two birds, later, you know, the whole right. nine yards. Careful what you ask right. for, right? But uh, to, to answer your question, I told her I really wasn't going to ever answer her questions. Um, uh, I wanted to be a law professor. That's the irony of what I'm doing now, is I wanted to be a law professor. I absolutely did not think about practice, and given my background, that wasn't a surprise. Um, but I, it was at the time of the anti-war movement, and I didn't want to go directly from one school to another. I didn't want to sit in a library. So I went looking for jobs. Um, and uh, I was, you know, a purist. I didn't, I, I didn't, I wanted to be able to control my docket. I didn't want to work in the public defender's office because I couldn't control what I wanted to do. I was a purist in many respects. Um, and I found a firm that no one had ever heard of, which was Silver Glate Gertner. It was wonderful. After you come from Yale, you know, people say, where do you go to school? And you go, Yale, and that's the end of the discussion. Mm -hmm. But when you say, where are you going now, Silver Glate, oh no, Silver Glate Shapiro, it was Zolkind and Silver Glate. The firm was Zolkind and Silver Glate. And when you say Zolkind and Silver Glate, you had to say why you were doing this. Yeah. And I was doing it because I wanted a taste of practice before I went back into the academy. And so it was all kind of Silverglade, and the case that really set my career off, which was this anti-war activist case, came to me then, and to, my, to the credit of my partners, um, they allowed me to take a case that was for virtually no money, um, and, uh, and, you know, and was extraordinary to allow a completely green woman advocate to take this case. And we'll go on, we'll talk a little bit about that, but I essentially won, essentially in the way criminal defense lawyers speak, <laughs> essentially won. And um, it launched my career, and then I was hooked for the next 24 years. So uh, when I talk to women students, uh, male students as well, it's, it's the notion that you can't and shouldn't plan your life out, that you, you go one step, uh, one step at a time and do what you love. And that, that's what I did. You do what you love and everything else follows. That concludes my presentation. Yes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I think hard work and, you know, brains and paying attention to what you love also, you know, uh, matters. Yeah, sort of. Well, so, but it's, it's definitely true, though, that not very many lawyers experience what you did, which is this one huge case that really sort of made you a household name, or at least a household name among people that were paying attention at the time. But you did. You had this case. Um, and the, so the Susan Sachs case you know, ended up making you kind of a star. Not necessarily during the trial, because it seemed like the press coverage during the trial, you know, it was a very prominent prosecutor. And, and a lot, it seemed like most of the press coverage was talking about how the judge was, was admonishing you about right. this or that or the other. Um, but then, of course, after the verdict, it was a, is a whole different story. But this is, I, I told my students and I've told the other people in the book that I just defy anyone to start reading about this case and then be able to shut off your bedside table light without finding out what happens. It's, this section of the book is a real page turner. So 
just, uh, I mean, I know that all I have to do is wind, up, wind you yes, up and let you go, but how, <laughs> how did you come about taking the case, really? Well, um, like, again, nothing is planned. Um, the, this, the, let me start with the, the offense was there were five individuals who were involved in the bank robbery, three men and two women. It had taken place in 1970, um, uh, and uh, th this was a time when the anti-war movement took a turn to the, to the violent, actually. Uh, this group had decided that they were going to rob banks and armories to raise money for the anti-war effort. And in fact, there had been a robbery in Newburyport, Massachusetts, one in Philadelphia, and then one in Boston. In the Boston robbery, three were, individuals were in the bank. One guy was guarding the entrance to the bank, and one person was in the switch car. Susan and the two men were in the bank. guy who was guarding the bank from the outside did not realize that the robbery was over. They had, in fact, successfully robbed the bank and were in the switch car. And the story was that a truck had blocked his view and he didn't realize they had gotten out. Someone pressed a silent alarm. A police officer, a very well-respected, loved police officer, went running to the bank, and the guy in the front shot him, shot him in the back. So what had been already a difficult offense, which was armed robbery, bank robbery, was now felony murder. The case started in Philadelphia, and I was asked to assist as a junior person to assist with Massachusetts law issues. started in Philadelphia, and as I write in the book, that was fine. I didn't know what I was doing, so I was just as happy to play a lesser role. Um, and then Katie Warbeck, who's a very wonderful criminal lawyer who was representing Susan, decided she didn't want to do the Boston case. Philadelphia went first, and then the Boston case. Susan was, deter was convinced that she was going to spend the rest of her life behind bars. And for her last moment on the stage, she wanted to be true to her values. It was really, um, a, in some respects, a very courageous decision. She wanted an all-woman team, woman criminal defense lawyer, woman jury selection, women investigators. One of the advantages of being uh, of the numbers in those days was that uh, there wasn't a lot of competition for, for uh, women defense lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, maybe one other. And so she wanted a woman criminal defense lawyer. She asked me how many uh, jury trials I had tried. I rounded off my three to the nearest ten. <laughs> she asked me how many felonies I had done. I had rounded off my perhaps four to the nearest ten. Um, and then she asked me to represent her in this case. Um, I actually, as I was writing this, I was trying to understand why I said yes. Um, in part, I said yes, because I didn't know how to say no. We felt at that time, and I, other women my age have talked about this, that we were carrying the mantle for the entire generation. It was a narcissistic feeling, to be sure. But if I acknowledged how terribly frightened I was of this whole enterprise, I was somehow letting people down. It was, as I said, completely narcissistic, because I could well have said, I don't know where to stand in a courtroom, much less do a murder case. But I, it, was, it was a challenge, in a way, to be able to come to grips with the uh, reservations that everyone had around me and come to grips with my own fears. And um, 
And in one sense, it was, uh, you know, she, for her, it was symbolic. She wanted a woman lawyer figuring that I, we would lose. The men had been convicted immediately. The three men had been found and convicted immediately. The women went underground for Susan for five years. She was apprehended in 1975. And Kathy Power, the other woman, was apprehended 20 years later. Just as a footnote, it's another wonderful, ironic woman story. The FBI put Susan on the 10 most wanted list, but didn't know where to find, Susan and Kathy, but didn't know where to find them. So they went to strip joints in Vegas. <laughs> you know, and they went around to, uh, you know, gambling places. They didn't know that the place to find Susan and Kathy would be in daycare centers and natural food stores. When they finally caught into that, Susan was, was arrested. But I, I didn't know, as I said, I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to say uh, no. And um, it was, so at this point, I, I, I was taking a case extraordinarily high profile. I'd walk down the streets in Boston. There'd be male lawyers whose name I noted. And when I became a judge, I remembered them. Uh, who would come up to me and say, you know, honey, you're in over your head, literally. You're in over your head. And I called my father to tell him that I was going to be taking this high-profile case. And I said to my father, um, Dad, I'm going to be taking a case involving an anti-war activist, gay, you know, uh, uh, I just want to let you know. I want to know how this is going to affect the pinochle game on Tuesday. Uh, and, you know, I want to know about the paddleball game on Sunday. Will you be embarrassed? And you should talk to mom and see what, what it, about, again, about the Mahjong game and the poker game. Uh, I just, you know, I want to just give you a heads up. And he says, and again, it's this wonderful dual message that he gave me. He says, well, Nets, I want you to take the case. I want you to do really, really well. I want her to be acquitted. And then I want her to walk across the street and be hit by a car. <laughs> it was classic. Um, and so we put together, it wasn't a total all-woman's team. I worked with Tom Shapiro, who was then my partner, and Harvey kept the firm afloat uh, while we were doing the case. Um, but we had a woman investigative team whom we called Nancy Drew Associates um, at a time when the only investigators were, you know, old police officers. Um, we had these quite lovely women who would learn all sorts of things from people that um, other investigators would not. We had a woman jury selection team. Um, and every night in the shower, I would talk to myself about lowering my voice and learning to be tough because she wanted me to be tough. And it didn't come naturally. Uh, every time I got scared, I would sound like Minnie Mouse. Um, but I, uh, I, it was sort of um, denying my fears. People have asked me how I had the self-confidence to take the case. I didn't have any self-confidence. The, the Boston Globe was a drumbeat of who the hell is she? The day before the Sachs trial began, the headline was, Sachs trial beginning tomorrow, prosecutor able, comma, tough. I was a potted plant. The prosecutor was asked, have you ever tried a case against Gertner? And he says, oh, has she ever tried a case? <laughs> right, not many, but you need to start somewhere. The press didn't know how to describe the, the courtroom proceedings. Every time I challenged the judge, 
they would, they would write about it as if he were admonishing a child. Really, the judge you know, admonished Gertner. The judge dressed her down. The uh, Patty Hearst case was going on in California at the same time. And F. Lee Bailey was described, you could tell by the adjectives and the verbs that the, that the press was using. When he objected, it was, objection, Bailey boomed. Nobody had me booming. Um, <laughs> but if I read the coverage, I wouldn't have, you wouldn't have gotten a sense of what was going on. In a certain sense, that was very helpful because I was completely underestimated, completely underestimated. If you want to interrupt at any time, well, I, I, <laughs> I mean, can just go on. <laughs> I, uh, well, one of the things you talk about in the book that makes it so gripping is sitting around sometimes at the jail with the whole team. And, you know, you're, you're working, you're doing the pretrial preparation, everything. But really it came down to do we have a defense? What is our defense? Right. This was your huge dilemma even right up until the trial started. And I would say, you know, the, the major thing that then you were heralded for being so brilliant for was a strategic decision that you made after the, the prosecution put on its case, this seasoned, confident prosecutor who... Had never lost a murder case. Right. And he rests his case, and you made a strategic decision at that point. So I wanted you to, to talk about that. Well, it was, it was, again, it was an issue of being underestimated. We had no meaningful defense. The... We, there was a possibility, I suppose, of the defense that other anti-war activists had used, which is the defense of, we did this because of the anti-war effort. That was a ridiculous defense to justify an armed robbery and murder. There was no way that we would actually ever engage in that defense. But just in case, we had called all the anti-war icons uh, as the government's case was drawing to a close. And the press was filled with reports about the Berrigan brothers and Howard Zinn and all of these people coming into Boston, people who had been known in the anti-war effort. And that was a sort of drumbeat in the coverage. Because they were on your witness list. They were on the witness list, right. Um, and we did that just in case we weren't really sure what we would do. And the case was coming in much more, much less strong, much weaker than we anticipated. And of course, in one sense, it's another discrimination story. No one noticed the woman in the bank. Um, so there was no eyewitness identification of her. Indeed, the, one of the tellers identified me as the woman in the bank, which was an interesting moment. Um, you know, all women look alike, all sort of short Jewish women look alike. I mean, we, I knew exactly what he was doing. But um, so the case is winding down, and it is really seems to come down to the testimony of a co-defendant with all two co-defendants, with all of the limitations of that. But there are two major problems. Susan wrote a letter to her father and to her rabbi right after the robbery. And the letters begin, by the time you get this, you'll know what your little girl has been doing. But the prosecutor anticipated that we were going to put on this anti-war defense. And he anticipated from the things that we said that Susan would take the stand. There was no way in God's earth that we were going to do that. But what happened is, one, when the case is winding to a close, he gets up and says, and I know that the last witness that they announced was coming on the stand the next day, 
And the night before, I practiced a closing, perhaps my third or fourth closing. Um, I practiced it. And the next day, the government rested without putting in those two letters. And it was clear that the best strategy was to rest. And so I describe in the book about how when the government says we rest, at that point I stood up and I said, sounding like Minnie Mouse, in that case, <clears throat> in that case, we rest as well. And it was the kind of moment sort of pre-cell phones, you know, when everyone rushed out to make a phone call. Um, to, and, and the press reported the same kind of what in creation is this woman doing kind of tone. A very frightening moment. I gave the closing argument. Um, and went back to my office with Tom Shapiro, my partner, and Harvey Silverglade, and we uh, were not sure exactly what we had done, except that it was the best decision at the time. Um, and then uh, there's a wonderful story about uh, I, Susan Sachs. Was, there was very few women prisoners. She was in the basement of the courthouse, and we would, I would go there to be with her while the jury was deliberating. Because um, uh, I couldn't, I, I'd never been through this before. I couldn't be anywhere else. And the first day, the press reports that the jury is nine to three for acquittal. I think that's as good as we're ever going to get. The next day, the press reports ten to two for acquittal. And on the third day, the press reports eleven to one for acquittal. I, because I was so unseasoned, all I, there was no, this is how you always do things. I studied social psychology, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, trying to figure, so 11 to 1 you knew was an unstable coalition, and there was a very real chance that we could have an acquittal. I, I don't think that I could ever replicate that feeling again in my life. We waited, and the jury hung at 11 to 1. The, it was seen as an enormous victory, as I said, the way criminal defense lawyers describe victories. Government did not want to run the risk of another trial. This had been the most costly trial in Boston history. Susan was offered a plea to manslaughter. She pled guilty and got the same amount of time as she had already gotten for one of the other robberies. And I went from being the potted plant to within two months, there was a Boston Globe magazine article which had, you know, four older males and me, criminal law superstars. So it was a meteoric rise all of a sudden. But, I, but what I took away, what I learned was I poured everything into the case. Um, I, we had a jury selection like no one had ever had in Boston. We had voir dire like no one had ever had. Um, I used, there was no norm. There was no, here's how you do things. I, no one would really... I wasn't prepared to take anyone's advice, so I didn't. But I, we, so we tried things that no one had tried before. And then to be rewarded for that really set the stage for the rest of my career. And at that point, I had my pick of cases. So the academic career was put on a back burner. I always taught and practiced at the same time, but it, the trial practice was completely seductive, and I wasn't going to go anywhere else. Well, I... I wanted to to back up, you know, part of the experiences that you had in the courtroom in that in that trial and with the press, you know, was was so different than what you had experienced at Yale and, and you talk about that being really rather 
rather shocking that you you went from this environment where you were sort of heady in your in in the power of pointing out every sexist slight and you know how obnoxious how but heady this. yes right and uh, and and sometimes I think. Uh, law students of today just don't realize how, how short a time ago it was that there was a lot of overt sexism. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the things you experienced and, and kind of what that was like for you, what, what a shock to the system. It seemed like it was a shock to, to the system. Well, you know, it's interesting, just as a, as a sort of more contemporary reference, um, why is it important that women of my age tell our stories? Social change doesn't take place in a single generation, and that's all it's been. So the notion that the attitudes that we struggled against, which were overt then and easily identifiable, have disappeared, is just not true. Things have changed. Things are much better. But the underlying attitudes are still there. And we, this, the story around my confirmation is really part of that. Um, I describe how... And I think that people have a variant of that when they're in law school. At Yale, it was like, you know, there's a guy sitting in front of you with a hat at a movie theater, and you say, you tap him on the shoulder, you say, excuse me, would you remove your hat? And he say, gee, I'm so sorry, and he took the hat off and put it down. Suffolk Superior Court in Massachusetts felt like the guy with the hat is in front of me, and it's, you know, a stovepipe hat. And I say to him, would you take your hat off? And he says, no. He says, how dare you ask? And all of a sudden, I was confronting comments that people made. I mean, essentially, the, you know, my high-profile um, uh, law school, my high-status law school, rather, was not an armor to the elevator operator who would make cracks, to the prosecutor who would make comments, you know, to the globe who would say, um, uh, whenever he, they would talk, mention my name, they would go, Ms. Gertner, she prefers that designation. You know, Susan was a self-styled revolutionary. I figured that they were going to move to, Matt to describe me that way shortly, too. But it was a constant. If I wore a dress that was loose-fitting, the prosecutor would say to me, you have no business looking pregnant when you're representing that lesbian. The rumor of my being gay persisted until to my confirmation hearing solely because I was representing someone who was gay. Uh, the media could not... There were numbers of times that the media couldn't distinguish between Susan and me. Um, so it, I went from a, a protected, incubated world of you know, Yale Law School to a world that was so totally different than what I anticipated and a world that un, seemed to be unwilling to engage. Well, but then there you are, and you're in it, right? And you've made this choice to be there. And now you have to make a whole bunch of other choices and, and uh, really s strategic choices about not only how to proceed with your career and what kind of cases to take, but your persona in the courtroom. And there was some evolution in the way that you dressed, um, you know, and, and you made, so you made choices in, in, with that. And you also made choices about how you were going to respond to that sexism how you were going to develop your courtroom persona and how you were going to communicate with juries. Right. So will you talk about those things? Um, first, um, you know, I started not even 
where most women started, because I was, now it can be said, I was a radical at Yale, right? Um, a lapsed radical, to be sure, but a radical at Yale. And I, um, I had all sorts of crazy ideas. I didn't believe in, in briefcases. I didn't believe in briefcases. Briefcase was a badge of professionalism that separated you from your client. So I would go into court with a shopping bag. I wore, you know, mini skirts. I was going to be me no matter what. Walked with mini skirts, had long hair. Um, and then I, of course, it, it was, should have come as no surprise that people, as soon as I stepped foot in front of the bar, the court officer would come running over and say, excuse me, do you belong here? And, you know, this was, why it came as a shock to me was beyond me. By the time of the Sachs case, however, I had decided on briefcases. Uh, because there was a court proceeding in which I had whipped out a file and something was dangling off the end of it, and I decided, you know, I think I'll compromise on that. <laughs> but I was dealing with really this was the this was the you know the everything was up for grabs, everything was to be examined. So I had an office, uh, one of our early offices. We would sit on the same have a desk where we'd sit on the same side as our client because I didn't want a desk to between me and the client. In other words, I was reacting to all the accoutrements of professionalism, which of course would have helped if I had engaged in them immediately. So the client and I were on the same side of the desk. And I stopped that when various clients helped themselves to my pocketbook. So I, you know, <laughs> thought through that. And um, uh, so in one sense, my learning curve was very explicit because of where I had started. I had no idea. There, was no, there were no trial practice courses at Yale Law School. I had no idea how to be in a court. Um, and as I like to tell young lawyers, I lost every case I touched in the first year. Every case. This is before the Sachs case. I lost continuances. My partner would say, go into court, get a continuance, and I would lose the continuance. Uh, my first jury trial was a woman who, a black woman who, who didn't stop for a police officer. Um, it was in Lowell with a very sexist judge, a very racist judge who gave a jury instruction that says the only way you can find this woman not guilty is if you label an officer of the Commonwealth a miserable liar. I, I was dealing with, you know, stuff that was so far beyond what I had encountered at Yale. So I try this case. Uh, I do more work than anybody could envision in what was essentially a traffic stop. I go to the ladies' room figuring I had some time to compose myself after the closing. And I, as I walk into the ladies' room, the court officer says there's a verdict. Essentially, the jury went into the jury room, pivoted, and came back out again. So I lost ignominiously, constantly, no matter what. What happened was that I, for the same reason I later took the Sachs case, I couldn't leave the profession until, couldn't leave trial lawyering until I had bested it, until I had conquered it. Again, because I believed that if I caved in, which is what I felt like doing, um, uh, it, it would just, could, my father would say, you shouldn't have been a trial lawyer. My male partners, who were wonderful, would say, women are not cut out for this. Um, and I had to prove something. It's totally narcissistic, as if the entire women's movement rested, you know, on our shoulders. But that's what, what I felt. And it was, um, it took one victory. I think it was a case, actually, where the continuance was denied. It's a motion to suppress. 
and the, my partner, Norman Zolkheim, was supposed to argue it, and I was just supposed to go there and beg for time. The judge smirks and says, no, little lady, I want you to try it. And I said, give me an hour to read the file, call Norman and ask him what to do. But it was the first time I tried the motion to suppress, and it was the first time I had to be in a courtroom unscripted. And that made all the difference in the world. So finally, listen to the witness, um, ask a question that was really a meaningful question and not a question that you had rehearsed in the shower. Um, and not that time, but then the first time you win, you suddenly feel like you, you have this in control. But although part of it was the time, which was so, the, the discrimination against women was so overt, particularly women in trial law, um, some of it, I believe, is, is a lesson for today because young women, as opposed to young men, face the same feeling of illegitimacy, not the same perhaps, but face greater feelings of illegitimacy than young men. I've seen this in my courtroom. A young man can pass deep voice, you know, certain comfort in the courtroom. Young women who may be well, as well qualified, if not more, have more difficulty. That learning curve may even out over time because they're now models of women lawyers and women judges, but the beginnings are really excruciating. Um, and my advice is that you just fake it, <laughs> which is what I did. And one day, you're lying about what you're, whether you're any good at this begins to match the reality, and you begin to get good at it. Well, and then, you know, you made choices, too, about, well, your, your signature color is red, right? right? So you, you, you write about um, courtrooms being... I think air conditioned for men, for men wearing suits. Right. So the mini skirts were your were like knees were turning blue. And so <laughs> right. really at that point then you face this choice, right? You could you could buy the dark suits and sort of take on the male paradigm, right. but you decided not to do that and in a in a sort of an embrace really of your femininity while you know, while still I guess. Right. All the relevant things were covered, <laughs> but it, was be, it would be read. Um, it's very interesting, just as a footnote, some of the women in my class have told me that young women today are told that when they interview for law firms, they should wear black suits and skirts and closed shoes. You know, um, it's as if there's a uniform. There's a uniform for men, but the uniform for women doesn't make sense to me. Um, I refused to be in that uniform. I figured that at the, when, by the time I had a certain self-confidence, I was actually going to take advantage of my womanhood. Um, there's a wonderful story in the book about uh, much later on when I'm pregnant, and I'm, there's a moment where I really wanted to just get back at everyone. So there's a story about um, Clarence Darrow, who used to, you, there was a time you could smoke cigars in the courtroom, and he put, I'll get to the point, don't worry. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> it's just going to take a little bit of time. Um, so he, you can smoke cigars in a courtroom, and he put a, a metal pin through the cigar, and as he was doing his, as the other, his opponent was doing their closing argument, the ash would get longer and longer and longer without falling off, and the other, the jury would be completely captivated by him <laughs> and not pay attention to the other lawyer. Well, and so I had an analogous, analogous situation when I was pregnant and the other lawyer was giving his closing argument. 
I would put my hands on my belly and moan softly. (laughs) No one paid attention to him. And I thought that it was really sort of poetic justice for the years of discrimination. Yes. Well, and no less than Alan Dershowitz describes you in the courtroom and that you had this magnetic presence and the kinds of facial expressions that you would make in the same way that your opponent would be doing a closing. And I'd be nobody would be, yeah, she'd make the face, and then nobody <laughs> would, be, would be watching you. Um, and, and I don't know if the mugging was part of this, but the other thing that, that you write about is, and I don't know if it was a conscious decision or if it was just, this is who I am and I'm going to be who I am, but you end up using humor instead of sort of a, for example, in the face of overt sexism that shocks everyone's conscience in this room, you used humor in the face of that and you used humor sometimes with juries or sometimes with witnesses to, to great effect. Because I was so new, everything was to a degree thought out. And one of the things that was clear to me was that uh, in the 1970s, the, the stereotype that I was you know, batting up against was the bitch stereotype. Um, and I had to make sure that you know, it was clear I was a feminist, and I had to deal with what I thought would be the obvious stereotype. And so to some degree, indignation and rage uh, overtly expressed was going to fit into the bitch stereotype. Humor was a way of leveling the playing field and also signified a certain comfort in your own skin, which took me a while to get at, Um, and sarcasm. But it really, um, it was the way that I would deal with things. So there's a sort of non-feminist story. One of my first cases was a labor case against a hospital called St. John of God Hospital. And the judge, in the first appearance, leaned over and said, Ms. Gertner, how do you feel suing St. John of God? (laughs) I took a breath and I said, well, judge, I get some solace in the fact that this is St. John of God, Inc. (laughs) (laughs) And you, you know, I developed a sort of a a repartee that really, people who write about these things is actually leveling, you know, um, uh, because you, you have to have some confidence in order to be able to pull that off. And so as I began to develop confidence, or as I faked confidence, that's what I could, I could pull off. Well, and you, you got a positive response from that, too. The jury saw you as more human. It right. probably felt more like they wanted to be on your side more. Uh, so, I'm, you know, there's that positive reinforcement aspect of it. And I was talking to... Uh, I, I felt very much like um, talking to the jury was talking to my father late at night. If I could persuade him that I was right, uh, then I could persuade anyone. And after he passed, actually, I began to tell my closing arguments to cab drivers. <laughs> it was the same kind of thing. Let me try something on you. And it was, um, I mean, it was very seductive. And in one sense, it was a substitute for teaching because. As a trial lawyer, you're a teacher uh, as well. And I loved, I loved that stage and still do. So I, I mentioned this to you today that one of the things that I find so powerful about your book and, in fact, about this conversation and the way you've mentioned it several times is that 
you write with such honesty and with such a clear memory of feeling, actually feeling over your head, feeling like an outsider, that it wasn't just that people were telling you you didn't belong there, you weren't sure you belonged there, that you really didn't know what you were doing very much of the time. And when I was reading that, I thought about other books that I had read by successful people, very successful people. And I think it's actually rather uncommon for those successful people to be that honest. And either they don't remember ever feeling that way, or they don't really want to talk about it or think it's unimportant. And what makes it powerful for, in, in particular, young people or people uh, who aren't so young like me who are starting out in, in careers is that your ability to talk about uh, going forward and taking risks, even in the face of feeling like, occasionally feeling like, I have really no idea what I'm doing. I don't, I, I feel like an outsider. It's very, very powerful, uh, a powerful thing. And, and again, I don't know if that was a conscious decision on your part or if it's just part of how um, sort of open and available you are as, as a person. Well, the, the memory issue, I, this was excruciating to, to be doing this case on prime time and to be going through this. And I couldn't share that um, much with anyone, and so I wrote it down. So I had a file, which this book grew out of, a very controversial file. It was called Sexist Tidbits. Um, somebody asked when I became a judge whether or not I should recuse myself from the people who are in that file, and I didn't think I had to, but I, I mean, it was after all 20, 30 years later, but I knew. So Sexist Tidbits was, was what I, I, I kept some record of this. But because I was, the women, they were not models of women lawyers in the courtroom at all. Um, there's not like today where at least you have images on television. So the learning, I, I, I remember learning about how to go into court. There was a wonderful course that Gary Bellow at Harvard Law School taught. And it was, for, of course, one of the early child advocacy courses. And he, he said, the first thing you have to do is read Stanislavski's method. Because you have to learn to be an actor in court. And you have to wake up in the morning and say, who's the persona I will be in court? Because it wasn't me, the persona in court. It really was somebody else. I wasn't raised to be uh, aggressive. I wasn't raised to challenge the judge. I wasn't raised for any of this in the way that women are still not raised to do that. So I would. it was actually enormously helpful to have the to, to read about that and actually participate in his course and realize that I was putting on a costume in the morning. And my costume was the red suit, and the costume was a lawyer affect. And, it, and that actually made it much easier for me because I, it wasn't that I had become that. I was wearing that costume. Um, and that was enormously helpful. But I, all of these things were very, very self-conscious for me, because I had started from such a uh, some, such a far out place in terms of this accommodation, this acclimatization. Right. Well, thank you for putting it all in the book. Anyway, uh, I. But uh, the one other thing about the outsider, um, it's also important to realize for young women that um, uh, the worst thing about discrimination 
not, not the worst thing, but certainly a bad thing about discrimination, is that over time it begins to match your sense of self. So when the judge said to me, you know, one woman, I asked him if a young woman's lawyer could sit, a woman law student could sit next to me, and he said, one woman in a courtroom is bad enough. Enough of those kind of comments begin to match your own insecurity. And you begin to say to yourself, well, maybe I, I really don't belong here. And you begin to say to yourself, how dare I experiment with a man's life in a criminal case? So it, it's pernicious not just because it blocks your, it overtly blocks your way. It's pernicious because it matches your own sense of insecurity until I got control of it. Um, and I actually describe, this is a, a quote from Lanny Grenier, who talks about being an, forever being an outsider, even when you became an insider. Um, uh, having outsider consciousness, no matter where you are. And I, I still feel that. Justice Ginsburg talks about that in colloquies, in the conferences among the Supreme Court justices. She once described how she will say something. This is when there was only one woman. She will say something, and her, the, the theme of her comments will not be followed up until one of the other justices communicates it. So in it, conference. In conference. Yes. So you, you know, it, it, it is still there. You know, and yet it also has, I think, its positive side to, to not let go of that outsider consciousness because it, it keeps you mindful, you know, it keeps you mindful of those issues in, in the way they weave in and out of your life. But, um, but I want to fast forward a little bit. Uh, you, you know, better because obviously we'll be I know where I know you <laughs> thought an hour and a half was such a long know. time. I mean, we haven't even gotten you confirmed yet. Four, but I think. I, you, know? <laughs> you know, and of course, after the Sachs case is over, it's what 1977. You're 30 years old now. Your phone is ringing off the hook. Right. But I, and and so you have your choice of cases. But you had actually begun working on abortion cases well before that. I think you know very shortly after Roe v. Wade. Right. Uh, so I'd like to just ask you a little bit about your passion for the abortion cases. Uh, um, you know, the, the abortion issue was my life in this respect. I had no plans to marry and have children. I was, you know, I dated like a maniac. Not that I was looking for a husband, but I was just dating. I wanted to have all of the roles that a man could have. It was, it was, for me, not a trimester issue and not a, you know, balancing women's health. It was, for me, an issue of I wanted all the roles that a man could have. And so Roe v. after Roe v. Wade was decided, the reaction happened immediately. Uh, Massachusetts passed or attempted to pass a whole host of restrictions as all around the country. And um, uh, me and uh, John Reinstein, who was the legal director of the ACLU, uh, started litigating these cases from one end of the Commonwealth to the other, but it was, it was, it was our lives. It wasn't just an abstraction. I watch people on television now talk about Roe v. Wade as if the issue were Roe v. Wade. It wasn't about Roe v. Wade, the decision or precedent. It was about being able to freely choose all the roles available to you in society. And Justice Ginsburg actually writes about. Roe v. Wade was a discrimination decision and should have been a discrimination decision, not a medical balancing fetus right to life decision. Um, so no, I, it, I, was, I was passionate about that. Well, and you and John Reinstein had the, the one really big case that was based on 
the Massachusetts Constitution, right. right, and not the U.S. Constitution. It seems like you're very proud of that case. Well, if um, no matter what the Supreme Court does, the right to choose was secured under the Massachusetts Constitution. So it doesn't get much better than that, as far as I was concerned. And a decision that was um, uh, situated it under substantive due process in the Massachusetts Constitution. It was an extraordinary decision. So that, yes, that was, that was enormously helpful. Well, and I suppose, you know, since we've, we've brought up John Reinstein, we might as well... Um, Who, is, by the way, has come late to this talk event. About I want to him. make it clear. Yes, he's, he's <laughs> here. Yes, he's come he, late. He, um, but I think you, and I forget whether, I think it's both in the book and in, in some other interviews and articles about you, but you talk about almost the inevitability of if you were going to fall in love with someone and decide to spend your life with a particular person, that when you look back on it, it seems like he was the inevitable one that that was going to happen. He, he didn't think so, and I wasn't so sure. But uh, um, uh, <laughs> so the, 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 we, we worked on the abortion cases together. Um, he was the legal director of the ACLU, and I was volunteering. And um, the first case, literally right after the Supreme Court decision, was a public hospital that refused to do abortions. And two doctors in the public hospital wanted to perform, uh, the, wanted to perform abortions. So John and I were going to go and interview the doctors. And I describe in the book about how I drove up in my battered Chevy, which we called Iffy for obvious reasons. <laughs> I drove up and I, I picked him up and... Um, and I thought he was adorable. Um, and, he, and he says that when he got into the car, I asked him if he were married. First question. This is not true at all. This is at de demonstrably false. What I did is I asked him if he were Jewish. <laughs> it was, of course, the same question. <laughs> um, but he was uh, both married and not Jewish. And we became friends for numbers of years uh, until his marriage fell apart. And, you know, and I, was, I went through the last boyfriend that I was going to have. Um, and, and we got together. I, inevitable in the sense that, um, I mean, I embarrass him now. I don't think that I, you, I started off, you know, with his very traditional family. So one part of me did not believe that I could find a man who would love me and appreciate how much I cared about this career. And in the first abortion case that we did together, we walk up to the courtroom and John says to me, you should do the oral argument. This is a woman's case. It should have a woman's voice. I was astonished, right? Not taking the glory, not doing the front part, the, you know, the front man. So I did the argument. And then after it was over, we walked outside and there were cameras all over the place. And he said to me, you should talk to the press. It should have a woman's voice. Of course, that was the last time he ever got a word in edgewise with the press. <laughs> yeah. He may have regretted that decision, but, um, but uh, I mean, this was a man who was enormously respectful and encouraged me, and we encouraged one another. Um, so it was inevitable in that respect. But I also, I mean, uh, I had my first, it took a while. So my first child was at 39, and as I write in the book, Menopause and birth was neck and neck. <laughs> was not clear which was going to happen first. So I had my first son at 39, my second one at 41, 
John had an eight-year-old daughter who was with us from the beginning. was 12 by the time we married. So in two years, I had, I was married, three kids. My mother-in-law lived next door. A dog, a cat, two birds, an, an iguana, and two fish named Bush and Quail. Right. Your son named right. Bush. And it was like the TV commercial where you look at the commercial and you say, I can't believe I ate the whole yeah. thing. <laughs> and I did. Happily so. Oh, my. Yes. Oh, gosh. There's, there's so much to talk about. I, uh, I really do want to talk at least briefly about um, the sexual harassment cases and then the sex discrimination cases. And you, you really talk a lot about how, how it's all a continuum, how they, they end up being, um, being very intertwined. But I forget what the title of that chapter is. Sexual, sexual harassment pays. Sex discrimination does not. Sex discrimination does not. Right. And you had this, you, you actually made quite a name for yourself. You, you have a habit of doing that, but you made a name for yourself in the sexual harassment arena, and you, you talk a little bit, and you almost started to be a little bit chagrined um, by the success of what you called, there's no one under 18 here, the oh shit letters that you would right. write in right. these harassment cases, while at the same time becoming sort of more and more aware of the difficulties of uh, of bringing and making a, a sex discrimination case. It, it's, it may be, I may be the only one to see this, but the book has to, a dual voice where I talk about what I did and then I talk about what I think about what I'm doing. And at the beginning, I could not think about, I couldn't abstract from this. I couldn't think about the police officer who was killed. I couldn't come to grips with... Um, the impact of the violence on that family. By the end, there's a dual narrative. And I believe that, this may be narcissistic also, I believe that I see the judge coming out because I would then do the case, the discrimination cases, a battered woman syndrome case, and then there was another narrative saying, you know, I'm not sure this is the best way of doing things. I can critique what I'm doing. But it took some self-confidence as a lawyer to be able to do that kind of dual narrative. But the sex harassment case that, that I write about was, uh, you know, the uh, wonderful woman named Teresa Contardo worked at Merrill Lynch. The, the sex discrimination was continued to be rampant and continues to this day in, the, in those professions that are uh, cowboy professions, the broker uh, who brings in lots of money, the doctor who brings in lots of money, all of a sudden it's very difficult to second-guess them. She worked at Merrill Lynch when she was the first woman there and the only woman, and there would be parties that would be uh, strippers or a cake in the shape of a penis. And she said quite clearly, um, I don't care about that. I can take it. That's what we can do. We can, I can take it as long as the money is equal. And then as time goes on and she's the top performer in the in the, uh, in, the, in the office, she begins to learn about what the men are making. When a broker leaves, his book is distributed amongst the other brokers, and somehow she never got any cases. First, they would say they were going to help out the inexperienced brokers. When she was inexperienced, she didn't get any of the cases. Then it was to help out the best performers. She didn't get any of them. Then she found out about a box, you know, the Patriot box, or the box at the, at the Boston Garden that somehow others had an opportunity 
to get to that she did not. Um, and so slowly she begins to realize that in a whole host of ways, this is affecting the bottom line. She sues, and it becomes very difficult to operationalize the difference between her income and what the men are getting, because this is about lack of opportunity, not necessarily about a formula. So the story I told to the judge, this was before jury trials in this area, was the story was the story of the penis cakes and the strippers and an atmosphere that got to be increasingly hostile, uh, leading ultimately to what we described as a constructive discharge. Um, the judge gave her very limited damages for the discrimination, but a quarter of a million, which was then a big verdict for, the, for punitive damages. And the, what was happening was that sex discrimination law then and now was stalling by mainly judicial decisions. But sexual harassment cases were winning. And I try to describe in the book how that happened. And in one sense, the sex harassment claims drew together right and left. The conservative judges, who may not have been very thrilled about sex discrimination law, it was chivalry. It was nasty to have women have to go through that. And of course, for other judges who saw this as part and parcel of a discrimination paradigm, it was sex discrimination. So suddenly you had very powerful decisions you know, equating sex harassment with sex discrimination at a time when other cases were not uh, succeeding. So that's what, uh, so I, and I've got many, many sex harassment cases. One of them is a very funny case. It turned out a, um, a, a woman, very prominent woman in town, kept on coming to me year after year and saying that she had this terrible experience with the head of her office who, you know, had her come into the office and demanded that she uh, perform oral sex on him. She'd tell me the story, and I, there was nothing to be done. Uh, it was her word against his, and it wasn't something, it was a tremendous risk for her to bring the case. One year passes, she comes back to me again, and she says, well, there, there are layoffs, and they want me to, they want everyone who's laid off to, you know, take a severance package and file a release releasing the company from all claims. Should I do it? I say, no. Take the money, but don't do the release. A couple of days later, I'm at a deposition, and I get a call from a lawyer in town. By this point, I was asked to represent defendants and plaintiffs. Oh. So the lawyer calls me up and says, uh, Nancy, he says, I represent a very powerful man who is about to be accused of sex harassment. And I said, will you tell me more? I, 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 I'm not putting it together. I said, would you tell me more? I mean, I, for all I know, I may have been consulted by the woman. He goes on and says, well, it's a sexual harassment case, and just between you and me, I believe he did it. He names the company, and I say, guess what? I represent her. And the case settled for rather large dollars immediately thereafter. <laughs> that was um, the oh shit phone call. That was the oh shit phone yeah. call. That's right. That's <laughs> right. right. That's right. But, but sex harassment, I think it's still the case today that these claims are more successful um, for this unique combination of politics. Well, and you, and you took on sort of a new class of sex discrimination litigation, which arguably is even more difficult than the garden variety sort of corporate case, which is the, um, 
the academic tenure cases. And you know, Evan was joking. You know, how does it feel to be a professor now at, at the school that you that you sued? And of Fabulous. course, that was that was your. <laughs> la I think that was your last um, sex discrimination case against an institution. But but you sued. I mean, pretty much the entire Eastern Seaboard. Um, yeah. But these but these cases involve. And I also sued judges, by the way. Oh yes. I sued yes. judges and, and institutions. You should have put that in the preface too. Sue some judges and some. And become a judge. Yes. Right. And uh, yeah. No. But uh, but it's it's incredibly difficult because if you're suing on behalf of a woman who is denied tenure, that's a very very tough tough thing to prove and you know being in academia you know you know and and uh you what what is the phrase that you use Be, you know, because the illusion of due process exactly the, the, the illusion um, of due process the, you know when when something happens on the assembly line it's the assembly line manager and the individual and you can amass a case when something happens with respect to tenure it is a committee a file outside letters, and um, you know, it could, it could in fact be a fair process, it also could be illusory. And the first case, you know, I, one of the things that's interesting about this, which sort of shocked me, is right after the Sachs case, I sued my first uh, institution, which was Tufts University. In a, in a gender discrimination case, a woman who was denied tenure in the art history department, where Although there was a collective decision-making body that found her inadequate for tenure, there was only one art historian on that body who was the chair of the department who thought she was terrible. The rest were, there was a physicist and a mathematician. So the notion that this collectivity was acting as a collectivity made no sense. It was essentially his decision. And, and all of the members of the committee said what he said went. So we won that case, I might add, that I only put in the book the cases that I won. It is, in fact, one of the privileges of writing your own memoir. Perhaps someone else can write the rest of the stories. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. I'm not. But academic institutions actually were and continue to be the most uh, troubling because the resources that it takes to do these cases are enormous. Um, the case against Harvard, Harvard Law School, again, was. I mean, I took these cases... So much of the choices I made as a lawyer were personal choices. And so this was, these, this was me as well. If I say that the abortion litigation was where I was in my life, certainly the academic tenure cases were there, but for the grace of God was the career I thought I was going to have. So these were women I knew and I understood and the nature of the discrimination I understood. Um, uh, Claire Dalton was denied tenure um, and the case lingered it's actually the case uh, began in uh, in the late 80s but it did not come to fruition she didn't want to deal with it until 1992 about just after i had been nominated for a judgeship and claire's husband was bob reich and he they were on their way to washington and there was a wonderful scene of a mediation at the charles hotel in cambridge and suddenly it now the mid-90s, there are four women in the room. Margaret Marshall, who was the chief justice, now the chief, was then the chief justice, not was then, had, former chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, then Harvard's general counsel. Joan Lukey, who was her, uh, who was the lawyer for Harvard. 
me and a woman mediator, who I think is Judge Morrow, if I recall right, four women in a room, and it was a very different dynamic than I had ever been through before. We postured for a couple of hours, and then I don't remember who said it, but there was a certain kind of, okay, enough of that, let's talk, and the case was settled by, by four or five o'clock. Harvard uh, uh, basically contributed to Claire's domestic violence program at Northeastern, essentially endowed the Domestic Violence Institute, of which she was the executive director, and the case uh, settled, which was uh, uh, you know, a great result. Um, but, but that chapter, I described the difficulties, the extraordinary difficulties of bringing these cases. It's almost like the higher you get in the ladder, the more difficult the cases exactly. be- become. All right. Well, so I, I really do need to do some fast-forwarding here because I, I do want to talk about uh, your time on the bench. Um, I lost my superpowers only four weeks ago. Right, exactly. So she's, she's coming down off of that. But uh, I was going to ask you, you know, a, a question about, you know, what would happen if you were nominated today in this political environment. But... That could probably be answered pretty briefly. No, I would <laughs> yes, not be no. nominated today. Not, not be nominated, and if you were nominated, maybe not confirmed. Um, not nominated. No, okay. Uh, and, you know, the story, I just have to recommend the book also for that entire story about the nomination. I believe you were asked, is there anything in your background that might embarrass the president? <laughs> Actually, that's where the book came together. I was supposed to go through my stories to see what would embarrass the president. I went through my stories. I didn't think anything should embarrass the president. But I think the president yeah. was Bill Clinton. I didn't think anything I did could embarrass him. <laughs> you know, that seemed to be said, a very different platform. I think you basically said absolutely everything I've done is going to be a problem, right. but it shouldn't be a problem, right. basically. And the story behind my nomination is Ted Kennedy. It has to be said that although I went to law school with Bill and Hillary, um, Kennedy was the one who was determined to see this through. And he's a rather unique and amazing senator. And there aren't, I can't name another Ted Kennedy, unfortunately, in the Senate now. So maybe you are going to have to reconsider that. I don't know. Go back? Oh, yes, that's right. Go back. But... The, the thing that I think, if I, if I have to choose something, you know, to talk about you on the bench, I want to talk about the fact that you have been called by some an activist judge. Uh, you know, and I kept thinking, no, actually instead, and I, and I thought this from the, from the earliest time that I, that I learned about your work on the bench, which was really in the beginning in the forensic evidence arena, I said, no, actually... What she's doing is she's doing her job. She's doing her job as a judge to the best of her ability. And, and it was so, have you used that potted plant um, example in, in an interview that I might have read? Because I thought of that. I said, no, what she's doing here is she's saying, I'm not a potted plant judge. For those of us who are old enough to remember the Iran-Contra hearings, and I forget the name of the guy that... Brendan Sullivan. Brendan Sullivan, right. I am not a, a potted plant. And your, your attitude in judging is, and, and was, you know, I am, I am not a potted plant. And 
I really do think that judicial activism is in the eye of the beholder. Oh, and sure. we talked earlier today about this contrast between, uh, well, I, using John Roberts as one example, right, his confirmation hearing, hearing, he, you know, proudly sat there and actually said with a straight face that, you know, all judges are just like umpires in baseball. We're just there to call balls and strikes. And this is seemingly the position that is staked out by judges who like to call judges like you activists, while, you know, if you really look behind what it is they're doing every day, one, one could actually say that they're the ones that are activists, like the five to four majority in a lot of cases on today's Supreme Court. And contrast this with Sonia Sotomayor's um, confirmation hearing where you know there was this comment and I was wondering actually if she made this comment at that same Yale forum in front of the women uh, law students but she had made some comment about I'd like to think and I don't want to mischaracterize it because it was so mischaracterized in the media anyway but she said something about I'd like to think that a wise Latina, Latina woman would make you know and it, it had something to do with this old standard comment about a wise man right. being a judge right and so she is grilled in her confirmation hearing of course about that do you think a wise latina is going to be a better judge than everyone else and the fact that you're a latina is that going to affect you and she she very bravely sort of defended this position of of saying look you know, judges come to the bench, especially the federal bench. You're going to be of a certain age. You're going to have lived a life. You're going to have lived a life in the law. Right. And, and lived a, a life outside of the law as well. And those things are going to color, not color your opinions, but they're going to inform them. And that, in fact, that's not, not, only, is that, not only is that not something to run away from, but that, in fact, the judges that are openly wrestling with that, just even among themselves, not gnashing their teeth in public about it, are perhaps the ones we have to worry less about. So I, I just really wanted to ask this you is about book two. Yes, Lisa. I mean, I, no, but 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 I, first, obviously, it, it, it's an incoherent term, right? It is. There's no question that activism has been applied to the decisions you disagree with. Are they activist? decisions. Um, so that's one thing. And um, I'm not sure what it means. It means overturning precedent, not anything that I did. It means, you know, ignoring statutes. Again, it's a different kind of, you know, reaching for decisions that you don't have to make. There's, that, there, that, that may be more of it. The other side of the coin you're, which you're addressing is this notion that in counter-distinction to activism, there is the judge who is the neutral. That's a false dichotomy. It's really not Justice Roberts's confirmation that I take my cue from. It was Justice Thomas who said he wanted to be stripped down like a runner without any entangling opinions, essentially. It's impossible. You get on the bench when you're in the late 40s and you're early 50s or, or even older. You come having lived a life. That's what common law judges do. One of the things I say in the book that is, in one sense, it was very easy for me to become a judge. I knew exactly what I believed in. I knew exactly what I believed in. There was no illusions about what I believed in. But I also knew where my advocacy ended and the judging began. It was an explicit 
battle inside me, as opposed to people who are saying, well, you know, here's an abortion case, I'm sorry, I don't have any opinion about abortion, even though I lived through this period. So the, 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 I, it was a very overt struggle, and it was a struggle, but it was one that I was you know, acutely aware of. Then on the issue of my context versus others, I, I just wrote a piece for Litigation Magazine, which I was talking about how context matters. That's really what Sotomayor's comment was about. There's a decision that the Supreme Court issued a couple of years ago called Iqbal versus Ashcroft, where we're supposed to look at a complaint and ask not just can any set of facts establish a cause of action, but whether the allegations are plausible. My plausible may be different than Justice Roberts' plausible. I may be able to to credit a discrimination complaint and envision it because I can't, because I experienced it. It's not to say that my envisionings are one-to-one correlation with an outcome. In other words, it's not to say that I should, you know, implement my life experiences. But it's an illusion to pretend that you don't start there. There's a wonderful quote from um, Justice O'Connor about Thurgood Marshall and about how he brought to the table a set of experiences that none of the other judges had ever experienced. Uh, the, the experience of having been overtly and frighteningly discriminated against, the experience of representing the dispossessed, the experience of being reviled. It doesn't mean that African Americans always went in front of him. What it meant, though, was that he brought a context to the table and struggled with it. And uh, I think that that's critical. That's not activism. The struggle is part of judging. And the issue is whether you pretend it doesn't happen or that you uh, you let it happen. If there's anything about my background, it was that I treasured the courtroom. I treasured that this was a place where people like me could be treated with respect ultimately and where people without rights could be able to function. If there's one thread through my judging, it's an access to justice issue, um, which, which is what I want to write about. Volume two. Oh, I can't wait for your scholarship. <laughs> All right, so we are almost out of time, and I, I was trying to figure out, well, what, what anecdote would I like to end with? And I, I think I'd like to, to back up, give a little nod to your mother, and then ask you to, to talk about um, the, the story that you told at, at your, um, your swearing-in. But so when we talked about your father and, and the, the dual message that he that he gave you, right? On the, out of one side of his mouth, he was saying, you know, girls shouldn't do this, girls shouldn't do that, but then he's staying up till 2 in the morning Yelling sparring with right. you. Um, your mother, though, um, after, after dinner was, was over, in her own quiet way, she, she didn't say, now, Nancy, get up and help, help me do the dishes. No, she would kick me out of the kitchen. I mean, it was really all the ambivalence of being a young woman. I, 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 I never washed a dish. I never cooked. She would kick me out of the kitchen to, to do work, go do work. And then, of course, she was surprised that I became what I became. By the way, I love to cook now. And, and I don't it, think that she, was, no. that she would be surprised at all. But, um, but the I, story, the, you're talking about the story. Yes. When I was, Your mother passed away. My mother passed away when I was 30. My father died three days before President Clinton called to nominate me. Um, it took 10 months to confirm me. And 
I was rattled by that experience. It was a brutal, brutal experience. So and when I was finally confirmed, I'm in Faneuil Hall, and Justice then Judge Breyer's on the, on the platform, and uh, Ted Kennedy is there, and all my colleagues. And there was a story that I told my father I would tell uh, if I got confirmed. And it's a wonderful story about my mother. I, so I, it goes back to 1971. I graduate Yale Law School, all sorts of honors, on my way to clerk for a federal judge. The future seems secure. My mother and I are having a fight. The kind of fight that mothers and daughters have, where you say things to one another you'd never say to anyone in the world. A really gigantic fight. What were we fighting about? My mother wanted me to take the Triborough Bridge toll takers test just in case. <laughs> you never know. After graduating from right. Yale on your way to the clerk. So I, I tell this story. The audience breaks up. I said, excuse me, I have something to talk to my mother about. I look at the ceiling and I say, Ma, at last, a government job. <laughs> and now you've left the government job and you've entered academia and we will all be watching and waiting with bated breath to see what comes next. But thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Wonderful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.